Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Wednesday, November 20, 1996, and John Rebo stood on a Darling Harbour stage to announce the draw for the 1997 Super League season. In addition to an 18-round domestic league and an interstate tri-series, Rebo revealed a tournament he called the most exciting development in rugby league this century. With this, the World Club Challenge was born. But would the reality live up to the vision? This is part one of the World Club Challenge, the 36th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I can hear that excitement in (laughs) your voice. This is a very long-anticipated chapter in our series. It's one of those things where you think, I hope we haven't built it up too much, but then you you just know you haven't because it's the World Club Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is far and away the one that we get asked about the most. When are you doing that? Are you going to cover the World Club Challenge? I know you personally have a lot of memories of the series. So I'm going to lay it out at the top. We've got three episodes in this chapter, and I would love to get as many memories of the World Club Challenge that people may have. You know, did you attend any games, you know, whether it was in England or in Australia? What were your thoughts at the time? We'd really love to get some feedback on this one in particular. So please send through any of your personal memories of the World Club Challenge to our socials or the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. But uh, I hope this is going to be a fun chapter. So (laughs) let's just set it up. In your notes that you sent to me when we were talking about the hype, you mentioned that you were part of the brainwashed hysteria leading it, actually. Do you want to (laughs) talk to that? I was right on board with the vision at this point. So I was year 12 Toronto High School, you know, the great educational institution that is Toronto High. (laughs) And um, I was out there every lunchtime. I was like a young Trotsky, getting people (laughs) on board, signing them up for the uh, cause. I'd take a a carload of mates into the Mariners and and whatever in the Ford Laser, and it's good times, man. It's good that they were able to fit the entire Mariners crowds into one Ford Laser. (laughs) (laughs) Five-seater, come on. (laughs) So that's interesting. So it wasn't you riding the Mariners bandwagon and the World Club Challenge alone. You at least had a few uh, fellow travellers. I had one mate who come with me to the Mariners marketing, the research marketing focus groups. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we were getting around in our Mariners polos and Mariners hats, you know. <laughs> Which would have been loved on the streets of Toronto and Newcastle, I'm sure. <laughs> I was already a target for a bashing due to my six foot two frame and 60 kilo um, weight, but um, that really topped it off. Cherry on top. And do you have any memories of what your expectations of the World Club Challenge were? Were you expecting it to be fair dinkum? Well, if you were on the grassy knoll, would you remember Kennedy getting shot, mate? Yeah, I do have a few <laughs> memories. 
as one of the most uh, anticipated things in my young life because I'd come off the, as listeners of this podcast know, I loved the 94 Kangaroo Tour. I just thought this English game was so cool and they played so fine and open and the jerseys were different and it was just exciting to me. Jonathan Davies was out here and he was carving up and it's all go. So I'm thinking, how good is this going to be, man? Like, finally the game's going to be global. We're going to have just this tight competition. <laughs> Wigan v Brisbane, it's just going to be so tight. Everything's going to be close, you know. The guys are going to lift to the English guys and I was just pumped, man. And how quickly did that bubble burst <laughs> once the game started? I was like, draw on the floor. Because I didn't really understand promotion and relegation that much. So Salford came up that year. And I didn't realize that they're basically below a reserve grade squad in quality. I didn't even have that much of a depth of understanding of the English game to understand that that was a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andy, I can forgive your teenage brain for that. Uh, We're going to spend this episode interrogating whether we should give the same leniency to the Super League organizers (laughs) who somehow thought that this series wouldn't be the train wreck that it ultimately became. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. (laughs) So let's get into it. Let's get to the start. So at this stage, the World Club Challenge was a concept that had been played not every year, but since 1987, it had been played pretty regularly. And then the war came along and put a stop to it. So 1997, Wigan were the rainy World Club Challenge title holders, having beaten Brisbane in Brisbane in 1994, which maybe right there sets up a bit of expected credibility that Wigan were this glamour club who had come to Australia and beaten our best team. So there was an expectation that they're a world club that can match it. So, you know, this tournament won't be completely one-sided. So that was the original thinking. So early in 1996, it was a big part of the Super League pitch that we're going to have a expanded world club challenge that is going to involve the top four teams from each country. So this had been announced by John Rebo in April of 1996 that if they won their appeal, that this would be the format, a four to, well, eight-team tournament, so four from each country. That was announced in April, and the ARL were even on board with this idea. Ken Arthurson said that if they won the appeal, they would go ahead with this format, and it would be even better because Super League were just making it Super League clubs. This would be open to every club to play in. So the ARL were really on board with this idea. It's very surprising that, mate. It's so surprising to me that that he would be um, that open-minded at that point. I think what it shows is that the basic concept was sound. As I said, Wigan were the reigning world champions, and this was something that there was at least some public appetite and a great appetite among the players. So the idea was there. It wasn't a terrible idea, even if Ultimately, even four English teams would have been stretching it in terms of providing a competitive competition. So I don't know what happened, but somewhere between April and November, this vision was expanded at the same time becoming more myopic with the idea that it would include every Australian and English Super League club. Now, let me ask you this. Is this not the metaphor for the entire war of just biting off more than you can chew for no reason? Yeah. Biting off more than can fit in your mouth. Yeah. It just comes back to the hype of Super League and Rebo's quotes in particular. It's talking such a big game without any real in-depth 
look at the landscape of rugby league by the way things played out. It was just, we're announcing this and it's going to work because we've spent six months talking about how it's going to work. And this was talked about from the start by some of the other people who were involved in the game. So Dave Hadfield, the great English writer, gave a lengthy article in the Rugby League Week about the launch of the concept uh, with the line, the fear must be that the omelette has been drastically (laughs) over-egged. So that was in November 1996. Uh, In my notes, I wrote that the omelette contained every egg in the battery farm. (laughs) And I love Steve Mascord's quote about the tournament. He said, it's a golden opportunity for league to gain some much-needed credibility. So (laughs) how how did that turn out? (laughs) But just reading this, this is another line from Dave Hadfield's column in the Rugby League Week. Just reading this out loud, it should have been enough for Super League to realise that it was an impending disaster. Even struggling Paris and newly promoted Salford are included. After original plan for just 10 European teams to balance the 10 from the Southern Hemisphere. That, says Rebo, is on the insistence of Morris Lindsay, who wants no club to feel left out. (laughs) Oh, fucking hell. I mean, I was going to ask you about that anyway. It was like 12 teams versus 10. It's so weird, just symmetrically. Yeah. It just goes to show you're dealing with rugby league men in all different parts of the world here. So you're going to have like insane thoughts coming in from every angle. So a few are going to seep through. And the funny thing is the insane thoughts that get talked down and the ones that just go through. So that idea about the 12 English teams and 10 Australian teams, someone said, oh, well, we couldn't have 10 on 10 with two pools because then you know, there'd be five teams from each conference. So you'd be stuck with an awkward buy situation. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, okay, we would have to deal with buys. Uh, on the other hand, doing it this way meant that there were six English clubs who played six matches and six that played four matches, and that then required a playoff at the end of it. Like, I just can't accept that it's gone through a rational person's head and come out the other end. Well, that is going to stick in my head over the course of these three chapters. How could this go into a rational person's (laughs) brain? For me, it does really come back to the bravado of Rebo and these grandiose public statements that it's like he thinks just saying them is willing it into reality. So his quote about the tournament was, the English clubs are very keen on this format. They know it will work. Now, I mean, if you were Paris Saint-Germain or um, Salford and they sat you down and said, listen, I don't want you to feel left out here, but um, instead of like leading you across the world to get beat by 80, we're going to just let you sit out this year, you wouldn't be that worried, would you? Even before a ball was kicked, it was talked about as being an unsustainable competition going forward. So it might have just been that those clubs were like, well, this is the only shot we're ever going to get, so please don't leave us out. <laughs> don't want feeling left out in Salford. So it seems from the outside, everyone was aware that it wasn't going to be an evenly matched tournament. That's only matched by the quotes of Rebo and the likes of Laurie Daly, who you got to admire his commitment to the cause. He became the biggest cheerleader of the World Club Challenge. There's so many Laurie Daly quotes about this. I've just pulled out one of my favourites, which was, As players, we've been waiting for this type of concept to materialise for some time now, and I'm sure the fans will love it too. I mean, the prospect of our fans being able to see us play Wigan is (laughs) mind-boggling. 
you and I both love Laurie and he's a genuine guy. Do you think he was legit? I go back and forth on this because I think he is a genuine guy and I can see him being genuinely excited about the idea of the competition. But this is a bloke that's been on two kangaroo tours and has played many English club teams. He must have known about the imbalance. He must have known that the clubs weren't going to be able to match the Australian Well, you clubs. say that, but on the kangaroo tour, club sides would give them a run for their money because they were just training run type things. So he's probably thinking, oh, mm. it's pretty close, you know. Yeah, yeah. It yeah, might be 36 point. to 12, but, you know, it's close enough. Little did yeah. you know. Mm. And he was big on the idea, as other people were, that standards had improved in England. And how much of that was just a perception because of the money that had flooded in and the, you know, relaunch as Super League and summer rugby and all the rest of it, that could have influenced his thinking at the time. He just got swept up a bit in the hype. I do think there's also an element of the salesman in him because he was by now had a year or so of being front and center and doing it. I think he'd really grown into the role of being a spruiker for Super League. Really set him up for later in life. Mm. And so Laurie Daly was therefore probably a pretty appropriate choice to be flown to England for the English launch of the World Club Challenge at the same time that a launch was happening in Australia at Darling Harbour with Linford Christie on hand to reveal the draw, which is a big get. Signing up to partner with a sprinter, I just don't think it's a good idea. Even at that point, we knew they were all on steroids or whatever else they were taking. I mean... If it was like you're in France and you sign up with a, a cyclist, you're pretty sure there's going to be some EPO yeah. <laughs> flying around, you know? Like, so yeah. I just didn't think it was a good match. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to give Super League a pass on that. One area I think they should have been a little smarter about was the fact that Nike was so central to their branding. Every jersey was sponsored by Nike. Linford Christie is sponsored by Puma. So when they tried to get him in a jersey... He, you know, wouldn't put it on. He would only wear a T-shirt that didn't have the Nike branding. It just seems so many athletes around the world sponsored by Nike, it would have been an obvious yeah, thing to you couldn't get. any one of the 10 million Nike athletes. But I do love yeah. a good sponsors war, though, you know. Usually yeah. it's beer-based in league, but what's funnier than the old electrical tape over the sponsor things in the old days? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a shame Terry Hill didn't sign with Super League because you know he would have jumped up on stage head to toe in Asics <laughs> or something just to be a dickhead. Definitely. Uh, also, I thought was interesting at the Australian Super League launch was that Robbie Paul and Paul Sculthorpe were both brought over for the launch. Paul Sculthorpe coming over from England days after he'd arrived back in England from the disastrous 1996 Great Britain tour of New Zealand. So that was a tour, if you'll cast your mind back to our chapter, where English players were being thrown overboard as jetsam to try to save some bills. (laughs) (laughs) They don't allow for the same players to start the tour, to finish the tour as a cost-saving measure, and yet days later they fly Paul Sculthorpe back to Australia. Madness. After just being in New Zealand days before, they're sending Laurie Daly to the other side of yeah. the world. Like, there's just a, a bit of a disconnect about the budget lines of Super Again, League. it's the arbitrary nature of the expenditure. We've got to save money yeah. on uh, big biros, but there's a hundred grand for a cover band. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe Super League were just 
thinking they were flush with cash because a rare success in terms of money in the Super League war was that Visa came to the party uh, and sponsored the event for $4 million. Success for whom? Do you think Visa are putting that one on the Mount Rushmore of partnerships? Well, they did announce halfway through the season that they would not be renewing that sponsorship <laughs> for, for 1998. So. Yeah, yeah. I just want to call you in for a meeting, uh, Visa marketing manager. Uh, yes, CEO, um, this Super League thing, what happened there? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they certainly got their money's worth in terms of being on all the branding of the World Club Challenge. It was the Visa World Club Challenge. It was all through Super League magazine, which ultimately is probably a bad thing to be so strongly associated with the tournament. (laughs) Poor buggers. But it was lucky that Super League did have that money coming in because it was obvious to everyone that it was going to be a costly endeavour. British sources were claiming that the event would lose as much as $6 million dollars. You had 22 clubs being transported around the world, two continents, four countries, hotels, flights, everything else that goes with it. Graham Annesley was involved with the logistical side of things. So that was the launch of it. Let's get to how it worked, the competition structure, how the pools all worked out. And I think this also shows you a lack of planning. So the tournament was to be played out over two, three-week periods, the first one three weeks in June, and then the second round would be three weeks at the end of July and the start of Hang August. Hang on, so earlier in the episode, we just jumped from the four teams to the 12. So is there no explanation for that? No one's no. put their hand up and said, oh, it was my idea to expand it. There is some buck passing and blame to be revealed later in this okay. chapter, but we, we won't get into right, that right. now. I'm just, I'm just concerned that it's um, being glossed over there. <laughs> so yeah so two three-week rounds i guess where australian teams would go over to england and then if you went over to england in the first three-week period you'd be playing in australia in the second three-week period and vice versa this would be then followed by quarterfinals semifinals and the final which would all take place after the conclusion of the respective domestic seasons in Australia and England. Well, as head cheerleader of the concept, imagine if it was competitive teams and it wasn't Mickey Mouse uh, and everyone was putting in like it was Origin, how good that would be for a format. Yeah, and that's something that we've spoken about as well like on quite a few occasions about the idea of a mid-season cup to give players a break or give the mid-Origin lag of the season a chance to reset. But I think what this tournament shows is that you really need to plan out every aspect of the tournament, how it's going to look. And the most illustrative thing in this respect for me is what you do with your reserve grade squads and the players who aren't included in the touring parties. So basically, they had no one to play against and were left twiddling their thumbs. So Barry John Mather, who was an Englishman playing in Perth, uh, but was left out of the Perth touring squad, said, I'm basically on my own. There have been five or six of us at training sessions, and it's hard to get motivated, and you wonder what you're doing there. It gets frustrating. We had a fitness session on Saturday, and there were just five of us. It's hard to pick yourself up and get into it. I'm not crying for Argentina over that. I mean, you're a professional getting paid. Just go there and run, you know? Like- no, but it, it's more that players were left to play in local competitions. Uh, Brisbane Broncos reserve graders 
decided to play for the Kenmore Bears rugby union team. (laughs) (laughs) How is that possible? I like the way it was reported in the Rugby League Week. They said, The initial approach came from the Kenmore Bears, who have a shortage of players and who realised the plight of the Broncos. As if it's some, you know, local league. It's, you know, we're too short. Can we borrow a couple of your players? Other clubs were left scrambling to try to find a country team to play against. Uh, predictably, the CRL knocked back Canterbury when they tried to play against Nambucca Heads. Why couldn't the reserve grade teams just play the Australian reserve grade teams like they normally would if they've all got reserve grade teams yeah, left over? This is what I don't understand. So that was actually suggested by Cronulla, who thought that the New South Wales clubs, at least, and Canberra, could play a little round-robin competition while the first graders are, are away. And that just didn't happen. For, you know what? That, like, that's a, a school PE word. You don't want that in your professional sporting league. <laughs> round-robin. So for whatever reason, that didn't get off the ground. And I think what this demonstrates for me is that for all the criticism the ARL cops and cops then for neglecting the bush, for neglecting juniors, for not thinking about lower grades in general, I absolutely trust them more than Super League to run the whole of the game, not just the top level. Super League was very obviously a top-down model that didn't give much thought to the down. It makes you wonder what would have happened if Super League went ahead as planned, one comp, no ARL, how the grassroots would have fared. Mm. Possibly torched. Yeah, The only way it would have worked is if the ARL accepted what the Super League put to them in February 1995, which was basically that that would be the ARL's role to run the whole of the game, to look after the juniors, to look after the bush while the Super League got the glory on the top. Ultimately, it would have been a good result for rugby league, I think, but I can totally understand why the ARL was unwilling to make that deal. So as we've mentioned, the tournament was to be run with pools. So there were two pools, Pool A and Pool B. These were ranked by on-field performance. So from the Australian teams, the top six teams uh, would play in Pool A. The bottom four would play in Pool B. And the same thing for England with the top six in Pool A and the bottom six playing in Pool B. So this is where the problem starts. An uneven number of teams in (laughs) each pool which, again, meant that the English teams in Pool A would play six games, the English teams in Pool B would play four games. It's just insane. I mean, right away you might as well just scrap it. If you haven't got equity and symmetry in a comp, it's over. Yeah. And this also goes into qualifying for the quarterfinals. So the top four from Australia and England would progress, but how that top four was measured was that it would be, from the Australian side of things, the top three sides from Pool A would go through and then the top side from Pool B. So that is how Hunter Mariners got through to the knockout phases by topping Group B, which some people might think that puts a, you know, a bit of a dampener on the fairy tale story of the Hunter Mariners run through the World Club Challenge. I think when we get to the games themselves and the actual knockout phase, I think you can mount a credible case for why there is no dampener. They did really well and they did what they had to do, which was topping the group. That was all they needed to do to go through. But they did so much more to um, play well in the group stages and then go through to the final. 
But I think that the top three plus the top from Paul B, it just makes everything so convoluted. So the top four from each competition go through, easy, straightforward. Everyone can understand it. But suddenly you've got this top three plus one from Paul B. And from the English side of things, it would be the top three from Paul A and then a playoff between the fourth team from Paul A and the top team from Paul B. It's just too confusing and it just highlights the lopsided nature of the way the competition was set up. And the other thing that showcased how lopsided this was, was the fact that four English teams were bound to go through. So whatever happened... I mean, I remember trying to defend that at the time and uh, coming up with uh, dead air. Yeah, and there uh, are just some absolutely comical ramifications of that decision, <laughs> which we will save for the concluding part of Think about this that. chapter. Uh, I like this from Jim Murray in the Rugby League Week. He said, quite conceivably, we could end up with the teams that finish 9th, 10th and 11th in the 12-strong Paul A going through to the semis, while those that fill 4th, 5th and 6th miss out. Thankfully to Jim, those fears did not play out. It was only teams ranked 7th to 9th who went through while teams 4th to 6th missed out. So... Uh, the integrity of the competition was preserved. <laughs> what a clusterfuck of all time. <laughs> so not surprisingly then, a lot of work was spent by Super League officials and their fanzine Super League magazine in spruiking the merits of this competition. Uh, so there was a lot of talk about the rationale behind having the tournament. So Morris Lindsay said that it was really important to stop the drain to rugby union, that they were losing players to rugby union, and this is something that could keep them in the code. This was supported by Robbie Paul. His quote was, I've been playing off-season rugby with Harlequins in London, and I'll be quite frank in saying I've only been doing it for the money, but I won't be bothering now. The World Club Challenge is a great concept, and I'd rather throw all my energy into the EuroLeague and the WCC, but had it not come along, it might have been a different story. Finally, a Kiwi with um, common sense about rugby. Yeah, yeah. And fair enough, I can understand that as a reason. I don't necessarily think it was worth blowing $6 million on a debacle, but at least it's a valid reason for trying to do something to keep your players in the code. I love this in Super League magazine talking about the old World Club Challenge. Truth be known, those World Club Championship finals have always been a little Mickey Mouse. <laughs> they went full Pixar production on this one. <laughs> you want to take Mickey Mouse to the nth degree. Yeah. So Morris Lindsay said that this was something that would be more substantial and prestigious. Slightly missed the mark there. Mate, all they had to do was take it slow and build it up, and it could have been something. I don't understand it, but I, all I can think is Super League knew they didn't have the time to build it slowly, but well, it, then, it's, then it's, don't bother building it at all if you're just nah, well, torching everything. It's easy Monday morning quarterbacking it, obviously, which this whole yeah. podcast is Monday morning. But yeah. they've obviously sat down and said, you know, it's not going to be that great, but we want to showcase what we can do worldwide and blah, blah, blah. They mm. must have had some corporate rationale, but it was an uphill battle. The striking thing to me in terms of the corporate rationale is this idea that kept on being promoted by Rebo and others that we had to do something. It, it can't just be suburb versus suburb. Sport's going global and we need to, to go with it. So this was Trevor McEwen in Super League magazine. 
These are the people who are quite happy to see a return to the so-called glory days of suburb versus suburb. In Sydney only, of course. The trouble is world sport is leaving them behind, locked away in their cosy time warp, never once thinking that it could all come crashing down around their ears unless league gets with the 21st century. <laughs> cosy time warp. Scathing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think this is true and it's something that echoes throughout Super League's talk about their vision for the game is that world sport is changing and suddenly we've got pay TV in Australia and basketball's taking off and, you know, soccer's big and all these other things are going on around the world and you're seeing bigger and bigger competitions. League can't stay small if it wants to compete. I definitely understand that sentiment. It's just more about playing out all the steps in your head before you just launch blindly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to comment now. We're talking about a time where pay TV was everything and there was no internet, Mm. really, and... It was seemed obvious that you're going to get a market around the world for this great game when they've got competitive paintball and fishing on. Mm. It seemed obvious that it was going to work, and then somehow it didn't. It was just also cavalier. That's the problem with it. You know, there was another quote in Super League magazine. Fortune favours the brave, and the World Club Challenge is already a brave concept. <laughs> already the cynics are having a field day. Well, the cynics were right to have a field day, and how did your bravery work out? Was fortune on your side? Bravery is great defending castles not made of sand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, the thinking was sound until they turned it into reality. So they were talking about you know, Laurie Daly and Andrew Eddinghausen becoming household names in England and Bobby Goulding, uh, Andy Farrell becoming instantly recognisable in Australia and this cross-continental pollination that was going to result in better results For everyone, it sounds great. And from a player's perspective, it's exactly what they wanted to hear. But it just wasn't the reality. But for me, this is just an aside. One of, I think, the genuinely cool things about this pitch and the idea that we're going to make English clubs massive in Australia while our clubs are getting bigger in England. The coolest thing about Super League magazine for me was how much English content was included. Yeah, it really was. It doesn't for a second justify the expense and the cost to the game that the World Club Challenge ultimately caused, but never before or since has an Australian Rugby League publication given up so much space to England. Like over multiple issues, it was pages and pages. You were getting to know the jerseys, you were getting to know the names. Looking back, like, you know, the last couple of years going through these magazines, it's cool to see Bradford on the, the front cover of Super League magazine. Well, I tell you what was underrated, mate. I loved it too, but uh, um, you know, we're 30 years past it now and it's a content bonanza. So I can't follow the NBA, the NHL and NRL simultaneously because this is not enough time mm. of the day. If you're an adult, yeah. you've got to work and everything. So I'm thinking that would be great. You'd be able to follow the English Super League as well as the NRL, but you really can't. You haven't got 16 yeah. games in your week. <laughs> Yeah. So that was the the rationale behind why we need to do it. Then Super League went on to give their account for why it would work. So Laurie Daly again was there saying that standards have improved in England uh, and he wasn't alone there. So Steve Mortimer said in Super League magazine, there is going to be tremendous competition for the Australian sides from the English. I've noticed the improvement in their professionalism and the increased performances of the former fringe sides such as Bradford and St Helens. It's just cringeworthy seeing these greats of the game 
exposed like that, isn't it? Yeah. I don't want to single out Steve Mortimer because that was everywhere. I, I could have pulled out 30 quotes from Super League magazine talking about how much better England were and how it was going to be a really close competition. What's he going to say? Like, um, I reckon they're going to get their ass handed to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the reasonings was that England are used to cup football. <laughs> this was Graham Lowe's argument. The English clubs are well-versed in what I call cup football. The Northern Hemisphere season has long included several knockout competitions on top of the customary premiership. Well, And that was Chris Anderson as well. He said that England are used to that, but it's foreign to us. Mentally, we'll have to adjust. (laughs) Not that big a leap, really, is it? And I think there's truth to it when you're talking about like a soccer situation where they have all these tournaments going on and a team that's out of the Premier League race can focus on the FA Cup or, you know, higher up, they might focus on the Champions League or whatever. That works out. That works for that sport in that context. I love this from Peter Ryan. This is the reality of cup football in an international rugby league context. So Peter Ryan said, it's a different type of football, real cup football. It's a strange thing to go out knowing you have to score as many points as possible. Getting in front and easing up could see you drop out of the finals. You have to change your thinking and do things you wouldn't normally do, like against London in the first round. Late in the game, we were trying to kick short kickoffs to get the ball back. We had to score more points. So that became the reality of cup football. It's the Australian teams just having to run up scores to have a chance to qualify for the finals. So I didn't even realise that. I mean, that probably explains it. Maybe if they were switching off like they would have in the um, kangaroo tours, it wouldn't have been so embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Another reason given for why England had a chance was that Australian players would be intimidated by English crowds. This was Graham Lowe again, who Graham Lowe might be the MVP of this chapter. I'll I'll set it up in advance, just some of his quotes over the next few episodes. Let's just bring him up. Throughout this series, this guy was positioned at that point as like a Warren Ryan type thinker in the game, and he's displayed uh, inverse walk knowledge of the game throughout this series. I don't know how much of that is genuine and how much of it is the Super League magazine requirements to spin as much bullshit as you can. (laughs) Um, He was certainly full of his own agenda throughout the year with what he was doing with the Warriors, as we discussed uh, in a prior chapter. Uh, But his quotes on the World Club Challenge in Super League magazine, he definitely earned whatever they were paying him. This was his comment on English fans. The English fans generate an amazing atmosphere at a game. The singing and chanting are something special and won't have been experienced by many Australian players before. Believe me, a full-throated home crowd can lift an English side to unexpected heights. You've read about the crowds, though. They are cool. They're cool, but to me, there's little less intimidating than singing at sports (laughs) matches. Yeah. It puts us to shame, though, the way we just sit there and we're like, yep, clap, clap, clap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been saying that I don't want to be singing either I'm tone deaf but. No I've never watched rugby league Or soccer in England So all my experiences Are the Barmy army here Anytime I've watched them I'll just be like Well are you going to watch The game at any point Or yeah. is it just singing For six hours uh, And my other experience Is the one A-league game I've been to In my life Which Embarrassing <laughs> It's just embarrassing <laughs> and, and they need to stop <laughs> What, you mean the sport in general? Or? 
<laughs> Look, have your little competition. That's fine. Have your, your weekly kick around. But guys, just you're embarrassing yourself. Uh, this is just some assorted uh, ludicrous comments that I won't really put into any more context but to read them out. So a couple from Graham Lowe to start off with. Given their current EuroLeague form and the home ground advantage, anybody who's prepared to write off the two leading Pommy teams as genuine WCC contenders is a mug. <laughs> um, the doomsayers are already predicting that the English clubs will struggle to match their Australasian rivals. Having coached in England between 1986 and 1990, I offer a friendly warning, poppycock. I believe a number of the EuroLeague teams will surprise many people and perform extremely well. Well, I think they did surprise people. (laughs) Uh, This was Graham Bicknell in Super League magazine. Initially, when the series was planned, the pool seedings, based on all teams' performances, made it appear that some of the games pitting Australia's best against England's would result in cut-and-dried victories and automatic advances to the September finals. It hasn't turned out that way. It should be noted that that quote was made before the first game. (laughs) So I... (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know what he was basing that on. But you want to talk about home court advantage? If they couldn't win in England, it's yeah beyond the pale. Mm. And Bicknell went on to say, the fact that there are so many imponderables makes it a fascinating competition. They should have done some pondering before they put it together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then once they got through convincing themselves that England actually were right in this and it was going to be a compelling competition. Then they went on to say, well, even if they're not, this is going to help International Rugby League. So John Rebo said, the reality is that everybody has to start somewhere. I can remember Canberra being on the end of some others of hidings when they first came into the game. Yet look at them now. The interesting thing to me about that statement is that it was made in January 1997. So Rebo then was fully aware that the competition was likely to be a complete mismatch. But somehow this was discussed within Super League and deemed a good idea to go on with anyway. Well, Canberra came in in 82, so we had to give this World Club Challengers like 15 years to get their feet or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's a completely different circumstance to say that Canberra used to get flogging, so therefore it's worth persisting than this competition that should be a jewel in the crown and has been hyped as a jewel in the crown is actually like a development tournament for struggling English teams. But amongst all the spin, there were some realists. So Barry John Mather said that when I was at Wigan, we might have five or six games where it was really hard and you had to be at your top. But here in Australia, it's tough every game, every week, urging caution from the English clubs who thought that they might be better than they were in reality. Brian Smith, having not long returned from coaching Bradford, said, the principle behind it is romantic enough, but it could be tougher in practice, which is a fair quote, but maybe obvious coming from a coach on the ARL side of things. Again, Peter Jackson, I don't know what he had in his Super League magazine contract that other columnists couldn't get, but (laughs) he's just the greatest. Passion and pandemonium will reach fever pitch when the pommies hit the paddock. I get a feeling that they might cop a bit of a touch-up from the Aussie clubs, but hey, who cares? <laughs> Absolutely no bullshit. And I would have actually respected Super League more if they were like, yeah, look, it's not going to be close, but hey, who cares? So the other thing that kept on coming up as to why they were running this competition 
was the idea that this was broadening the test experience to regular players. There was an off-repeated line that the World Club Challenge gave lesser players the chance to experience what had previously been reserved just for test players. That was Laurie Daly's sentiment who said, in the past it was only the elite Australian players who made the national team who got to travel to the Northern Hemisphere to play. I'm just so over this and you hear it from rugby union types all the time. You get to travel, you get to go to different countries, and, and it is fun to go play in a different country, right? But yeah, just go on a holiday at the end of the year, you've got plenty of money. Exactly. Yeah. Why do you have to and, travel and the, to play? And it's so amazing. I don't get it. I love this. This was in Matt Rogers' book. He said, The World Club Challenge will go down as Super League's great folly, a disorganized and ultimately costly competition which pitted outclassed English clubs against the best Australian teams Super League could offer. The reality, though, is quite different. The World Club Challenge was actually a great experience for the younger guys in the Cronulla Club who have never got the chance to play in England. <laughs> I love that statement. Just He includes the suggestion that it was a disaster that did game-wide damage and his defence was that a small group of well-played young players got to travel to England. But the funny thing is, and I put myself in this class because I was living over there as a young man in England for a couple of years, and I I was a philistine that only wanted to drink and gamble, right? So yeah. like, they're not getting the most out of these trips, are they? Really, like, no. I think some culture was had on the tours, as we'll get to. I, I just wanted to include this quote from Dean Lance, just as a small aside. But Dean Lance said, "If you look at guys like Matt Geyer, Chris Devo, and Matthew Daylight." With the utmost respect to those players, they're probably never going to play for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't want to single out uh, Matthew Daylight. <laughs> that quote just made me laugh, but it also just made me think about Matt Geyer and how this was how he was viewed in 1997. And a couple of years yeah. later, he's an origin player. He's game. a premiership winner. Ended up playing over 250 games, you know, so... Great respect for Matt Guy and what he was able to do with his career. That would be crushing if that's your coach <laughs> coming out and saying, mate, he can't play basically. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a, a golden opportunity for some of these players to experience countries they may not have been to before and playing in England, which they may never get the chance to do again. I love this. There were a lot of hard luck stories. You know, Nathan Long, for example, doing a step in a game against the Cowboys, snapping his tibia out for eight weeks and misses the tour. I've got genuine uh, sympathy for Nathan Long there. That'd really suck. Well, it just goes to show how um, different it was because Nathan Long shouldn't have been sidestepping. He should have been running flat out and getting rocked and his hair flying backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Tough nut, that guy. I don't know if we have an official stat, but I'm pretty sure this was the only sidestep in his very respectable career. Between him and Lang, there wasn't too much um, horizontal (laughs) movement in that squad. (laughs) So I've definitely got sympathy for Nathan Long in that situation. And there were reports of Wigan players taking it easy in their last domestic game before travelling to Australia, lest they suffer a similar fate. I can respect that. I've got less sympathy for... (laughs) This was talking about Barry John Mather again. As we mentioned, he missed the trip and it was reported in Rugby League Week that, you know, this was a devastating blow for him. So in Dave Hadfield's column, he wrote, Making it worse for Mather was the fact his grandparents in Blackpool are celebrating their golden wedding anniversary this week. The Reds are just an hour and a half away in Leeds. 
Are we funding a rugby league competition or a family <laughs> reunion service? So what the competition became in reality was an expensive bonding situation. So all these quotes about how actually the tournament was worthwhile because we got to know each other a bit better. And um, this was Graham Murray's quote from the Mariners. We're only a young club and they're young blokes. They're still learning about each other. I think they've all got themselves a new nickname from the trip. <laughs> Great. So it's about, <laughs> what, 600 grand a nickname, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think there was a real effort from some of the Australian coaches to make sure that the players got to enjoy themselves and experience some culture. Wayne Bennett called it one of the most enjoyable trips he's done in his life. Matt Geyer was of similar sentiment. Uh, shades of uh, Czechoslovakian TABs from his statement here. <laughs> I've never been out of Australia until this year, but we're in England at the moment, then Paris, hopefully followed by Auckland when we play them later in the season. And then I'm planning a holiday in Bali with my girlfriend at the end of the year. <laughs> I'd like to come back to England at some stage and have a good look around. Although I never want to live here. The place is too cluttered and there's too many people. I'd never want to be a pom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. I just picture these squads in their um, Super League tracksuits walking down the main street of Paris and doing like, you know, pushing each other into bushes and like you know, <laughs> someone crouches behind the other one and they push them over and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. I love it so much. And, and speaking of Paris, this was Gray Murray's quote of the Mariners' trip to Paris. I've only been to Paris once before and I was very impressed. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why, but that just made me laugh so much. <laughs> You're going to love Muzz. Imagine if the Parisian tourist board hired Muzz to like have a big thumbs up and a smile, you know, come to Paris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the Mariners went all out to make sure that the players had a good time. Uh, Chief Executive Officer Bob Ferris said that he wanted his players to sample the French and Parisian and English cultures to broaden their minds and hopefully make them better people for the experience. Which, for all the problems in the game, how far down the list of priorities is giving Nick Zisti a chance to see the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> I'm happy for Nick Zisti. The Adelaide Rams were also very charitable, giving all players, not just the 19 players in the squad, the chance to go over, which I thought was a nice touch by them. Not all clubs and coaches had the same generous spirit, so... Maybe no shock, but Chris Anderson was a bit of a killjoy on tour. So, <laughs> so a few of the boys had brought their golf clubs along for the trip. Which says it all. Yeah. Uh, but Chris Anderson, who was a big golfer himself, but had an injury at the time and couldn't play golf. So he decided that no one else was going to either. So Simon <laughs> Gilly said, every time we had a game organised, Chris put on a training session. They should have just dropped him off at Transylvania so we can visit his homeland and then <laughs> have a few games. The funny thing was that the Dogs were one of the Australian teams who went to England in the second leg and they'd already lost one of their first group games, which meant that basically their English trip was three dead rubbers. So they might as well have packed their golf clubs and just enjoyed the holiday. Similarly, Tim Sheens threatened to take a development squad to England with him because he felt that a lot of the Cowboys players weren't putting in in Australia. He ultimately didn't follow up on that. But it's such a fine line to tread for a coach where you're trying to instill authority and discipline and 
you know, get a professional attitude at the club. At times, you've got to do things like cancel golf games, but it's threading a fine needle in keeping the respect and not losing the dressing room by doing that. Well, true, but in those days, the coach had more respect. I mean, in yeah. modern times, they, they get coaches fired you know, left, right, mm. and centre by not putting in, but in those days, the players were the ones that got fired. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing's got like school excursion vibes. Getting sent home, not putting in. <laughs> this is one of my favourite quotes on that. Shane Richardson, the CEO at the Sharks, said that he received a call from the owner of the hotel where the team had stayed. He said he just called to congratulate Cronulla on the exemplary behaviour of the tourists. <laughs> As if they were you know, Catholic school kids who were all wearing their ties correctly on the train home. And... <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, you're expecting them to behave like absolute boorish brutes, and um, if they don't, it's amazing. Well, well, that's probably a neat segue to some boorish, brutish behaviour that was either expected or eventuated on the tour. So rugby league players on holiday means alcohol is going to be involved at certain points. Uh, Laurie Daly was up for the challenge. He said about his impending trip over to England, I'll let you know how I go with Booney's record. <laughs> i got to say, for a guy who loves the beer that much, uh, he's one of the best drinkers because he, he's never had an incident hardly. He's dropped Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's that story from early on in his career. Well, I guess he'd been established. This was like the early 90s. And I think from memory it was Luke DeVico. It might have been Croker, but I think it was DeVico who... The Raiders had had like a, a Saturday night game and they'd gone on the drink, had a big night after the game. The next morning, Laurie Daly was with Luke DeVico and was like, oh, do you want to go to the Gold Coast for the day? So they <laughs> yeah. hopped on a plane together to continue the party on the Gold Coast and then came home. And then during the week at training, Tim Sheens gave DeVico a dressing down and said, look, Laurie Daly can do that. You focus on, you know, making the first grade squad and keeping your game in order. So I think he might be one of those players that just had it in him to yeah. get on the drink, have a good time, but you know, no one got hurt and he didn't disgrace himself. Old school, man. Uh, but Super League saw him and the rest of the players coming, so they instituted an alcohol ban on the flights over to England, which I think was one of the smartest things they did. On the, the subject of alcohol and the excessive drinking that took place on the tour, Roy Masters had a article where he discussed players drinking and he said the reality is players are drinking less when i coached west my problem was getting the players out of the pub <laughs> six years later at st george my problem was getting the players into the pub <laughs> except for the west team who was threatening to get on the drink <laughs> i love the idea of alcohol not being a problem after the mid 80s <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine what the 80s were like i mean <laughs> I've got to say, Brisbane were one of the clubs who took a really professional attitude to the World Club Challenge. They were one of the few clubs that were really strategizing about the idea of cup football in terms of, you know, short kickoffs to get the ball back and that sort of thing. They'd actually sent Chris Johns over in advance to um, do some recon on hotels and grounds and that side of things. The players put in extra money so they could fly business class and get some extra rest. So I think they took a professional approach to the group stages, at least. Their quarterfinal against St. Helens might have been a different story. This was Gordon Tallis's quote on that. We didn't know how we'd go. We'd been on the drink for two weeks. <laughs> 
But Laurie Daly wasn't alone in terms of the Raiders enjoying themselves. They got together with the Cowboys, obviously, sharing some players and the coaches. So there was a, a lot of lasting friendships among those two clubs. They got together because the Ashes were on at the same time. So Raiders and Cowboys both attended the fourth test, as well as parting with Australia in the dressing room after the match. Which, uh, just before we get to the after party, this is one of my favourite Laurie Daly quotes. We had a huge day at the fourth test, especially after Luke DeVico outfitted us all with brightly coloured curly wigs. The problem with that was that a couple of eagle-eyed photographers recognised who we were, and the next thing we knew, the photos had popped up in the papers back home. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, you all wear rainbow wigs, uh, wearing your Super League polos at the cricket, <laughs> eagle-eyed photographers. Eagle-eyed, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't miss it, would have I? <laughs> <laughs> They partied with the Australian cricket team after the match. Uh, a reunion for Steve Walters and his old opening bowling partner at Ipswich Grammar, Craig McDermott. Wow, didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either. Some famous stories came out of that with Steve Warren, I can't remember the other players, but taking up the challenge to run at Malmanenga, who duly put them on the ground. I mean, that can't be good for injury risk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so crazy. <laughs> uh, not too much bad behaviour with the exception of Jason Deeth, who did a helicopter move that may have involved some dropped pants and was threatened with the sack from the Cowboys. He was sent home from the tour, but ultimately his career there was saved. It's funny what gets you sent home and what doesn't on rugby league tours. Yeah. I'm sure there's a helicopter an hour. (laughs) For Auckland, it was a whole squadron of helicopters. We're now going to get to the Matthew Ridge uh, portion of proceedings. So uh, Matthew Ridge was there as captain of the Warriors and they were very much into the team bonding exercises. And one way that the team bonded was with court sessions where basically players would be charged with various offences of different levels of severity uh, and the punishment was invariably to drink and or remove clothing. I'll read this. We decide, okay, we're going to have a court session, a bit of a bonding and getting together. So we tee up Mark Ellis as the judge because of his all-black court session experience, which just to stop it there, I love that we've brought in this all-black because he's going to bring all this to the club and we're going to draw on his experience. He turns out to be a dud league player, but he can run a bonding session. Uh, But to go on, and what a sick session this one is. We all end up in the nude. Frank Endicott, the manager, all of us. Mac is in charge and we make him get all his gear off to lead proceedings. We all have to stand up on a table and come up with a game or tell a story. We do some serious drinking, but it's good fun. Jesus. One story which definitely didn't make Frank Endicott's book, Ridge said, I look over and there's Frank Endicott, a pot belly in his pecker swinging free. (laughs) We're blessed of the no-hold-barred truthfulness of Ridgey, right? But how would Frank Endicott feel about reading that? Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I mean, the coach, for Christ's sakes. But, you know, a rugby union guy leading the bonding session and straight away everyone's nude. This, like, yeah. <laughs> that homoerotic undercurrent of union just seeps through everywhere. 
I mean, to be fair, we had players squirting themselves in the face with water bottles in the what you get is what you see commercial. <laughs> I, I, I don't think homoeroticism and rugby league are too far apart either. I'll just read this as my defense as to why people in glass houses should you know, be wary. <laughs> this is Ridge's conclusion of the court session. I'm off my tree before long and end up sculling a glass of beer and being sick. We trash the hotel room. It's an absolute <laughs> mess by the time we've finished. The court session's supposed to take an hour. Three hours later, we all stagger out into the corridor naked. We have a whole section of the hotel to ourselves. <laughs> so we're all just staggering down the corridors back to our rooms in the nude. <laughs> Think about it. Think about that. But just the fact that Frank Endicott and uh, you know other team management are there in the room just letting the hotel room be trashed. Yeah, yeah. It's that whole thing, and it's barely changed now, really. It's just like this, the boys will be boys things, you know, let them let their hair down. Like, So the administrators were always part of the boys. Yeah, yeah. There was never a separation. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Warriors also did the classic tour thing of buying a cheap bomb that they could drive around and, you know, trash over the course of the tour. How the hell was no one killed in these... Oh, I know, I know. So it was uh, Gene Namo and Stacey Jones who bought the car. And Ridge said, After about four days, guys turning up at training and on their way to the field are running up and over Gene and Stacey's car. The poor little thing's starting to fall apart. Dents everywhere. The door won't shut properly. On the last day of the trip, everyone in the team totally destroys it. We boot the hell out of the panels and spray paint our names all over it. We just leave this little yellow graffiti-covered wreck sitting in the middle of the hotel car park. I'm sounding like an old man at the clouds now, but I mean, uh, and I grew up with this type of behaviour. It's just antisocial for the sake of it. Yeah. It's so, it's just disgusting, really. The idea you go to another country and just like leave a trash car in the middle of the street and laugh and go home and someone else has to pick up your mess, you know? I'd have more understanding of it if they did leave it in the street, but the fact that they've just done it and just left it in the hotel car park. Um, to your point, I like this quote from Matthew Ridge. This little bubble turns out to be the genius car of the trip. <laughs> just just the idea of <laughs> this behaviour. God, he's the funniest. But it wasn't just the Australians enjoying themselves. The English had a great time in Australia too. So Andy Gregory, who was coaching Salford, he was asked what he thought of the idea. Uh, and he said... A good idea. Well, I'm lying in my bed as we speak. It's 80 degrees outside. I'm in Townsville tomorrow, and tomorrow I'm going to, out to have a look at the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic idea. <laughs> they would have been lapping up the sun, right? But... Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, not every club uh, had the same luck. So Paul Sculthorpe at Warrington wasn't too happy with how his tour turned up. The Warrington Wolves were stationed at a hotel in Sydney's western suburbs. Uh, Sculthorpe said, It was crap. Paris was staying in a plush hotel in Bondi, Saints were at Coogee by the beach, and Bradford were down at Cronulla. We definitely drew the short straw. (laughs) Uh, And some bad behaviour being reported from the English clubs as well. Three players were fined for their bad behaviour on the plane ride home at Wigan. Another English player... Neil Cowie was sent home because he missed training. Nigel Wright was asked why he was sent home. You know, I don't know if it's a sent home ball offence. And he said that, I'll try to do my best Yorkshire accent. 
What's coach going to say? Stay on piss on Gold Coast for the rest of the week. <laughs> Our English listeners have got to comment on that uh, accent, please. <laughs> I thought it was quite good. but I've been working on it. So, yeah, I appreciate some feedback on it. I think that's based purely on that Yorkshire poet from the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, St. Helens were also uh, finding some of their players. So six players were fined for peroxiding their hair, oh uh, which was deemed failing to reflect the professional standards required, which is a stance that I wholeheartedly applaud. Now, what's your position on peroxide and rugby league, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> Never shall the twain meet. <laughs> so forward thinking from St. Helens. Uh, this isn't bad behaviour, but this is just one of my favourite stories. Um, So this was reported in Rugby League Week. Our spies in the rocks say a group of Warrington players were up in arms that they could not get a five-seater taxi for a trip across to King's Cross last week. They insisted on travelling in one five-seater car and waited for nearly an hour for one to turn up, even though there were two four-seater taxis ready and waiting to go. The arbitrary nature of Super League expenditure. But it seems like the most Northern England thing for these players a taxi from the Rocks to King's Cross in 1997, like Eight $20 maximum, I'd, no, I'd, I'd 20 say. bucks now, 8 bucks then. Yeah. <laughs> it's that Northern England obstinance on the smallest things. Yeah. It's yeah. unteachable and very lovable. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that English clubs had a great time in Australia, which was maybe reflected on the field. Uh, but Morris Lindsay was keen to say that it shouldn't be considered a holiday. He said... There were some clubs who overdid the recreational aspect of their trip to Australia. It has to be treated as the equivalent of a Great Britain tour. And I hope the clubs going out there this time will take that on board. Put it this way, the ones who pack the golf clubs are not going to be in Super League in a couple of years' time. (laughs) Which, for me, there's two ways of thinking about this. One is that you're already up against it. You really should be thinking about the game, not the holiday. The other way of thinking which I think you can see with how the game's turned out, you might as well pack your golf clubs because that's the most enjoyment and the most success you're going to get out of this trip. When it's sold and justified as a chance of a lifetime for these young players and giving them experience that they wouldn't have got otherwise, well, the players are going to treat it that way. Yep. But that is where we leave this part of the chapter. Just to give you an idea of what you can expect over the next two parts, We're going to be obviously looking at all the action on the field, culminating in the final in the third part of the chapter. But what I'm also going to do is try to include some context of English rugby league at this time. It's not going to be as detailed as our Chapelton Road chapter, uh, but I'm going to give some context on various clubs, how they were doing, and then what the wash-up of all of this was, what it meant for English rugby league, and what it was going to do for the future of English Rugby League. So that is what will be coming up in the next two parts of this chapter. As I said, I really, really would love to get some World Club Challenge memories from our listeners. So please hit us up and hope you've enjoyed this one. And there's much more ridiculousness to come in the weeks ahead. (laughs) I'm metaphorically helicoptering waiting for it. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.